God's Word. We'll be in the book of John, chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Jesus is speaking when he says, Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is the word of God. You may have a seat. I feel like we've said you may have a seat a lot this morning. Uh, About six summers ago, it was a really good day in my email box, my, not my work email box, my I buy stuff email box, because I found out that my favorite band from high school, who was not a huge band, they didn't make it, in fact, people who opened for them went on to be bigger than them, but this band was getting back together, and they were going to be on a summer concert tour, and it was all ending at the Troubadour in West Hollywood. And I was pretty excited, and there was a new album, and so uh, I went to the website to look for tickets, and there were a couple of options on the tickets. We could go to the concert, and Jenny gave me a thumbs up on going, even though she's not really super into the music. But there was a second option. Since it was the final show of this reunion tour, we could pay just a little bit more, and we could have dinner with the band prior to the show. And uh, so we did that. Jenny graciously surprised me and let me know that on this August evening, six summers ago, that we were going to show up early and we were going to get to have dinner with, you're just curious who the band is, right? (laughs) Toad the Wet Sprocket. You've probably never even heard of them. But they're a Santa Barbara band. I grew up in Ventura. And and they're not a Christian band, so you have been warned, okay? Um, (laughs) Deeply spiritual, though. Deeply. So I'm pretty excited. We've got a couple months before the big concert and the big dinner, and, and we, I keep reading what's being promised. And, we, and, and in my mind, after we have had this dinner, we are going to be family friends. I mean, we're going to exchange Christmas cards. They're going to ask about my kids. Um, next time they're in town, they're going to swing by to use the restroom and grab a, a cup of water. The promise was so great, right? So we get there early and we fight through traffic and we show up early and this intimate dinner that we had been anticipating, all these expectations, we start seeing a line going out of the restaurant wrapping around the corner. And I go, surely that can't be for our intimate evening with Toad the Wet Sprocket. 
And it was. There were a lot of other people. And what I learned first is that I'm old, um, looking at who else was in line with me. But sure enough, you know, this, in, my, in our minds, this was going to be a, a dinner, you know, dinner. Not stand in line for 90 minutes, get up to the band, shake their hands, pose for a picture, and then afterwards be told by the hostess of the restaurant, and I'm not exaggerating, try to just have two chicken wings, just two, because <laughs> there's more of you here than we thought. So we got two chicken wings and some celery and a drink, and that was our intimate evening with Toad the Wet Sprocket. What we had spent months anticipating for, what we had spent months having an expectation for, when it finally came, we had no, we weren't even close. It was such a different experience. The expectation and then the confusion that come, that came to us after that evening was significant. When we read what's happening in the book of John in chapter 10, expectation and confusion from the Pharisees on who the Messiah was going to be is at the center of the drama. It's at the center of the story. This long-anticipated Messiah, all kinds of conversation, all kinds of hopes, all kinds of theories as to who this Messiah will be when he comes, And Jesus shows up, and it's nothing like they thought. And they're super confused. And the specific expectations they had, or or the specific definitions of what it meant to be the Messiah, were just blasted by Jesus. There was a lot of confusion in the book of John about who Jesus is. There was a lot of confusion in the book of John about who Jesus is from those who knew the most about God and the scriptures. And I would argue, and I think you would agree, there continues to be a lot of confusion about who Jesus is. And as somebody who went to seminary, just because you know a lot about Jesus, there can still remain a lot of confusion about who Jesus is from people who might even know the most. So when we find Jesus in chapter 10, he is in the middle of a conversation. There is no difference from 9 to 10, it just keeps moving. He is in the middle of a conversation with the Pharisees. And so before we get into specific verses that we have just read together, it's important that we understand some immediate context of what's going on in chapter 9, because it's a continuation. We're catching him mid-conversation. And what's happening in chapter 9, if you're familiar, if you can read back and look at your handy titles, Jesus has healed someone. Jesus in chapter 9 meets a man who has been born blind And in his ministry to this man, Jesus gives him sight. And as a result of giving this man sight, all drama breaks out. People were confused. People didn't understand how this was possible. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, uh, went and summoned the man's parents just to confirm that he was actually a blind person and it wasn't a, a fake story. And then because that was confirmed, they kept looking and kept digging for a way to discredit because Jesus was, again, not what they were expecting. It didn't make any sense to them. And so what they finally hang their hat on is that Jesus can't be from God. He can't be the Messiah because he did this healing on the Sabbath. He chose to do something on a day that their tradition 
said there were certain things you couldn't do on the Sabbath, and Jesus, by healing the man on the Sabbath to the Pharisees, proved that he wasn't who he said he was. The Pharisees are not very happy with Jesus. From chapter 9, I have a couple of thoughts that are really important before we get to this shepherd discourse and this gate language. And the first one is this, is that religious rituals and positions were mattering more to the Pharisees than people. The religious traditions and positions that the Pharisees held of what the spiritual life was, of what was right and what was wrong, was much more important to them than the actual person. They were so wrapped up in their religious living, they were so wrapped up in their religious tradition that they missed the point. They missed the person who was in front of them. They missed the Messiah, but they also missed that there was a human being who had been healed that a human being days before could not see, but after encountering Jesus Christ was healed and could see. We will see this over and over again in the life of Jesus, that Jesus is all about healing and restoring human life. This is consistent with Jesus, who will affirm the value of human life throughout his entire ministry. He values human life more than he values tradition. We see that in this example. We also know the story where Jesus is going in the temple, and and in the temple courts, they'd set up a mall. They had set up different rituals and traditions around the worship experience, taking advantage of people. And we see that Jesus becomes angry and starts flipping over tables, saying that this tradition is not as important as people and their relationship with God. So over tradition, over economics, Jesus values people over economic prosperity and even economic stability. i remind you of a story, if you don't know it, there's a story of a man who's demon-possessed. And Jesus casts the demon out, and the demon goes into a bunch of pigs, and the pigs fall over the cliff and drown. The man's healing, the man's deliverance was more important than pigs, and they're not just pigs, that's economic value. That is somebody's livelihood. And we find out that people were upset about that, but Jesus makes a pretty strong statement. This one person matters more than stuff, matters more than economy, and we know that Jesus will value human beings and human life over himself and his own reputation by those he chooses to spend his time with, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the people on the fringe of society who everybody else had written off, and Jesus says, "Uh, no matter what you think of me, I care about them. So the religious rituals and positions were mattering more to the Pharisees than to people. But also the Pharisees were enjoying their religious position. They enjoyed their religious position so much they had failed to look for and to see the Messiah. They were the religious authority. They were the religious powerful. They had incredible power and influence and as it happens, when a select group of people hold power, they can become so enthralled with holding that power or so blind to the power that they hold that they can fail to see the people under them as valuable. And actually, when powerful people are threatened, we will fight. It's a natural instinct to fight and to rebel against anyone or anything that might try to take that position and power away. And let's be clear, Jesus was a threat to the Pharisees. He was taking away their monopoly on God. 
He was such a threat to them that those of us who know the story, they kill him. They murder him because he was such a threat to their system. He was such a threat to their positional authority. He was such a threat to everything they had set up. So chapter 10 flows right from 9 in this context, this audience of the Pharisees who are just struggling, confused, fighting against this message of Jesus, this person of Jesus. And Jesus begins teaching them, continuing the conversation, using language of sheep and shepherding. Another bit of context that's really important is that this is not just random lamb language for Jesus. That sheep and shepherding is biblical imagery, is biblical narrative. And he is speaking to a group of people who are so versed in the scriptures that when he starts using sheep and shepherding, it's meant to wake them up to the prophetic messages that promise the Messiah and use the language of sheep and shepherding. There's nothing random about this to Jesus. Jesus is using this language of sheep and shepherding to describe himself and to show that he himself is the fulfillment of prior prophecy. That Jesus is putting himself in the middle of the messianic promise of the scriptures. Give you a couple examples quickly. In Zechariah, Zechariah 11, a whole bunch of language about sheep and shepherding and messianic promise. Zechariah 11.17 says, Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. And then later in Zechariah, this worthless shepherd that has deserted their sheep is compared to a different shepherd, a shepherd who will be stricken for his flock, a shepherd who will be pierced for his flock, messianic promise to Jesus. Ezekiel 34, another chapter full of shepherding messianic promise. Ezekiel 34, 2 says, woe to you shepherds of Israel. Woe to you, Pharisees, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? And again, later in Ezekiel 34, this contrasting this shepherd who only takes care of themselves to a shepherd who will search for his sheep, to a shepherd who will rescue his sheep, to a shepherd who will save his sheep. The Pharisees are not picking up on this image, this language, this fulfillment. They're not seeing Jesus as the Messiah, and by him using the shepherding image, he places himself right in the midst of messianic prophecy, trying to teach them, to wake them up. So throughout John 10, he teaches an entire discourse on shepherding. There are two I am statements in chapter 10 I am the shepherd, I am the door. So as tempted as I am to talk about shepherding a ton, we're going to save a lot of the shepherding for that message, but it is in context with this overall shepherding discourse. When Jesus says, I am the gate, or I am the door, your Bible might say, and we're going to use those um, together this morning. So let's jump into chapter 10 with this context. If I were to summarize into one word how we can understand what Jesus' teaching is about in chapter 10, the word would be intimacy. That chapter 10 is soaking with the picture of an intimate Messiah. It is soaking in a picture of a God who rescues his people personally 
and who is right among his people as a shepherd is with their sheep. So in verses one to five that we read, we see an intimate image of a shepherd with their sheep. In verse three, we see that this shepherd calls his sheep by name. And the shepherd whose sheep can know his voice, verse three. A shepherd who goes ahead of his sheep when they leave into pasture. Verse four, he calls his sheep his own. Again, who leads their sheep into pasture and whose sheep know their voice. In the first five verses of chapter 10, we see a portrait, a picture, a fulfillment of the prophecy that this is, a, this is not a selfish shepherd. This is a shepherd who is very interested in his sheep. So interested that his sheep can hear their name. So interested that he is right there among his sheep, not distant from them. Verses 1 to 5, soaking with relationship, soaking with intimacy, soaking with connection. And then we proceed to verse 6 where it says, Jesus used this figure of speech, this image, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. So we have these first five verses of this picture of Jesus putting himself in the messianic promise saying, I am this other shepherd. And they don't get it. They're not picking up on it. It's not triggering for them. Oh, Ezekiel. Oh, all these prophecies. It's not working for them. And so Jesus continues on in verses 7 to 10. And he continues on with this image and this message that I would, I would encourage us to look at as an intimate message. But honestly, it's a surprising intimacy. When I got the email from Greg that I got, I am the door, I, was, I thought it was a setup. I'm like, why do I get that one? Can't I get something more poetic? I mean, I get a door. And the more I studied and the more I thought about it, the more I prayed, the more the intimacy of a door, the intimacy of a gate started just coming alive. It's a surprising intimacy. It's not a random object. He wasn't, he wasn't somewhere with these Pharisees and looking around and going, see that door? I'm, I'm like that door. It's soaking in meaning and the surprising intimacy of a door. A door is an access point to our life. A door marks the coming in and the going out of our days. A door marks the relationships that come in and go out in our lives. When we've been invited through someone's door to come to their home, it's such an honor, so intimate to be through someone's door. The intimacy of being let inside. A door provides privacy. A door provides safety and security. A door lets you know who is home and where you belong. You might have an animal like the animal we have where I, when, when somebody shuts the car door, the barking begins. It's an awareness of someone being home. And that intimacy of a door doesn't just move in a kind of a positive direction with all those things. Think about the intimacy of not having a door. The trauma for those who are homeless, for those who don't have a place to rest their head, that don't have privacy, that don't have security, incredibly intimate and vulnerable space. When a door has been broken into, 
the violation, the violation that we can feel when someone has come in through something that was supposed to be so secure, very vulnerable, very intimate. A door brings life in and a door takes life out. There is a coming and a going. And so this image of the door of the gate in the teaching in John 10 is just as intimate, if not more. A way to understand the, the, the shepherd and the door would be as a shepherd would move around the countryside with their flock, there would be kind of these makeshift pens made of rocks and just kind of like to cove them in for the night. And there would be an entrance, but there would be no permanent door. And so a shepherd in that context would literally themselves become the door. So the sheep would come into this place that was kind of reserved for sheep to rest for the night. And then across the opening with which they entered, a shepherd would lay down and make that their bed for the night, securing their sheep with their physical body. They would physically become the door for their sheep, with the sheep pressing on their body all night long. The shepherd with their flock becoming the door is incredibly intimate. And Jesus says to you and to me, I am the door. I am with my sheep. I am with my people. I keep them in. I know them. They come and they go through me. So for this morning, in this context of Jesus being the door, in the context of him speaking to the Pharisees, I just have a couple of thoughts for us to consider as we think about Jesus being the door. And the first one is this. Through this teaching, I think we see something very clear. That there is only one door in. There is only one door in to relationship with the living God. Verse nine, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. We will learn later in John 14 when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. This is an exclusive claim of Jesus. And depending on who you are and where you are, this exclusive claim of Jesus saying that there is only one door in to God, some of us celebrate that and some of us struggle with that. Maybe that's not the way we would do Messiah. Those wouldn't be the way we would teach. And frankly, I'll be honest with you, having so many family members who don't walk with Jesus, I struggle with the exclusivity of Jesus sometimes. But Jesus is clear. There's only one door in. What I am so grateful is that Jesus never says in this teaching, you become the door too. Or that we as his sheep will somehow grow in maturity to where we get to take his place and be the door. No, there's only one way in and there's only one door and the door is Jesus Christ. And so the pressure that we might feel to judge the world around us or to judge somebody's faith, that's not on us. That's on Jesus himself. There's only one door in and there's only one door and it's Jesus Christ. And praise God, it's not you and it's not me. Because as tough as these words can be for us, these aren't my words. They're his words. 
They're words of Jesus himself, and they have been written, John 20, later in the scripture. All of this has been written so that we might believe in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing that we may have life in his name. All of this isn't to make a theological statement or to start a war. This is said by Jesus so that people can find life, not stay away from life. Amen? Jesus and Jesus alone offers life. There is only one way, one door in, and there's only one door, and it's Jesus. The door to intimacy with God is through Jesus Christ. It's the only door to eternal life. Life with God forever. And here's the thing. I think we mix up and mess up this concept of eternal life. For so many of us, we have been told and we have been taught that eternal life begins once we die. And I would say, yeah, but. You read John 10 and Jesus has come now to give us life and give it to the full. That there is a way of living now that begins now and extends into eternity. Brothers and sisters, if you are living this life waiting for it to start one day once you die, I say you're missing it. That eternal life is something that begins now and extends into eternity. That the fellowship and communion of life through the Spirit of God is one that brings great meaning and great purpose. And eternal life isn't something that starts when we die. Eternal life is something that begins now for those who will submit to Christ and it extends into eternity. Jesus teaches that in the midst of this truth, the truth that there's one door, and there's only one door in, and that there's eternal life, he teaches that there will be thieves and there will be robbers Thieves specifically, and they're very different in their, in, in their definition. The thieves are referring to those who will come along and subtly and kind of tricker, using trickery kind of try to distract us from the truth that there's one door and that there's one gate. And then there are robbers who will use violence to distract us from that. And as I think about the state of our world, it seems to me that there are still thieves and robbers alive and well. I think about the challenges for many of us even here in in Pasadena or in California or the West, the global West, and the things, the subtle ways, the thieves among us who would make us doubt that there, well, maybe there's some other doors. Or maybe he didn't mean it like that. Or maybe there's no door at all. The subtle way to distract us from the central truth of Jesus Christ as being the only door in. And then I think about just parts of the Middle East and the violence that ensues to kind of convey a message, a counter-narrative that life can be found outside of life with Jesus, that there are other doors, better doors, or there's no door at all. And brothers and sisters, there's only one door in, and that's from Jesus, not from me. And my question is, have you entered that door? What I love about this image of the door is it continues on. Jesus, in his fullness, he's not going to be limited to just being the door. But in Revelation 3.20, we see here, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus isn't this secretive door that we've got to get a, a, a map to to find. Jesus is the door to eternal life, is the door to intimacy to God. But Jesus loves you. And he loves me and he comes knocking on your door too. And this morning is Jesus knocking at your door saying, come. I was thinking this week about just the the difference between Jesus being the door in our faith versus 
some other faiths. Part of uh, a class I had one time was to go visit different houses of worship, different religions. And I was, one of the things I wrote about that struck me was before you could even enter the door of some of these places, all the stuff you had to do. Or once you entered the door, all the stuff you had to continue to do before you could get to the deity, before you could come to this place of enlightenment, all the work. And Jesus, in contrast, stands at the outside and says, I'm the door, come on in. The work's all been done. It's an exclusive claim of Jesus. It's unique to any other religion. And it's inviting and it's rooted in love. So the first observation, there's only one door in, but here's the other observation. The door always leads out. The door always leads out. Jesus will always lead us out. Verse nine, they will come in and go out and find pasture. This image of coming in, we come in the sheep pen, we come into the presence of Jesus, we find safety, we find security, we find rest, but we don't live there. We come there for some time, and then we go out, and in fact, he's pretty clear, when we go out, guess who's out there? Thieves and robbers, and they're ready to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus does not say, I am the door, live your life in the pen. No, he says, I am the door, and it's through me you come in and you go out, and it is central to making Jesus the center of your life and the intimacy with the God, with the God of this world, the creator God of everything, that we understand that a relationship with Jesus doesn't just bring us in, but sends us out. We do not live our lives with Jesus behind the door and in the safety of the sheep pen. That space, again, is important. It's what we're doing this morning. We find intimacy in this space. We find rest in this space. We find security in this space. We find identity in this space. But we do not live here. And we don't stay here. We are to go out and to find the pasture that Jesus is leading us to. But if we are honest, a tendency that we have had as Christians, even in modern history, is to cloister ourselves off from everything out there and to find the safety and security of just being with one another. If we just stay close enough to Christians and far enough away from the robbers and the thieves, then that would be a way to walk with Jesus. And what's behind that, frankly, is fear of what out there can do to us. And as we read in Psalm 23, we have a shepherd who tells us, do not fear, for I am with you. I think at times it can go too far for us as a community of faith. Think about your calendar. Think about those you spend time with. Think about the the people who get the best of you. And if there's no out there in your calendar, it's probably time to reevaluate that. That's completely convicting for me. That's why I do things that I'm frankly not that terribly excited about. I coach T-ball not because I think T-ball is great, but it puts me out there. 
I spend time doing things with third graders at our elementary school, not because I get it and I love it, but it puts me out there. Where are you out there? The door will always lead out. This door leads to real living, purposeful living, rich living, and Jesus says abundant living. In verse 10, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's after, he says, they come in and they go out. And so this coming in and this going out is the abundant living. It's the rich living. It's the purposeful living. Jesus offers life to the full over and against those who will try to steal, kill, and destroy. And he doesn't promise us. He does not promise that there will be no thieves and robbers. He says, no, in the midst of that, that he walks with us and he goes before us and he's got a life and some pasture for you and I to work. Notice the relationship, the close relationship in these words between abundance and destruction. We have these minds that say destruction. There's no abundance anywhere near that. The thief comes to steal, to kill, to destroy, but I have come to give you life and give it abundantly, to give it fully. This is the tension of life. In the last two weeks, I have been to memorial services. Destruction. In the last two weeks, I have sat with people who have lost their children. Destruction. In the last two weeks, I have been on the phone with someone who has served divorce papers. Destruction. In the last two weeks, I've been in a meeting, in a connection with someone who was racially profiled. Destruction. And what's common in each one of those stories is that abundance lives right near for the follower of Jesus. That in the midst of destruction, the presence of Jesus, the door, the intimacy of a relationship with God, when it's right next to destruction, abundance will always win. It will always pure hope. It doesn't make any of those things unhard. It doesn't make any of those things light. It doesn't make them insignificant. But there are moments of abundance right next to destruction when we understand that the door always leads in and leads out. And so for us this morning, as we head into our week, I have a couple of thoughts in terms of where many of us might be. And the first one is I'm just going to talk to those of us for a moment who we know there's only one door in. Boy, and we, we've said, thank you, Jesus. And we understand that Jesus is the gate, that he is this door, that he is the entryway into real life, to abundant life, to eternal life. And I say to you this morning, is it possible that we and some of us might be making the door more complicated? Is it possible that we, those of us who should know it the most, might lean a little bit towards some of the Pharisee stuff. That our traditions, that our positions are more important than people. And instead of living a life that shows the door of Jesus, we make it more complicated by putting a whole bunch of stuff in front of them before they could enter into a relationship with Jesus. Is that possible for some of us? I know it is because that was the message for me this week. That Jesus is the door, not me, not you. And that we are called to abundant living. And how easy it is to judge the Pharisees for not getting it, but if we're honest, we don't get it all the time. And maybe this morning we would have ears to hear. I don't know specifically what that means for us, Lake Avenue Church. 
But I know that in 120 years of a church, there's just stuff. There's just ways we do things. There's just things that are a part of what it is for some of us, and I wonder. I I sometimes wonder what you would do if I showed up to preach the way I used to preach to high school kids. I wore sandals. It was great. (laughs) But that's not what we do. And I'm not saying that's what we need to do, but that would be an example of a tradition being more important than people. But for those of us this morning who's really on my heart, it's for those of us who've never entered the door, who've never entered a relationship with Jesus. And this morning, do you hear the shepherd calling you by name? Do you hear the shepherd who rescues you? The shepherd who lays in front of you to save your life, to give you rest? And I pray that this morning, that you would enter through the door, that you would enter through the gate to real life, to abundant life, to eternal life, a life that will bring great meaning and purpose even in the midst of destruction that you would experience abundance. The other thoughts this morning are the door always leads out. And I will admit to you that sometimes we do too much living behind the door. So where are you out there with people? Where are you out there serving and living the mission that God has for you? As a parent, I'll admit to you, this concept of of the door leading out is a hard one for me. To let my kids live, live this life and this community that we've been called to without fear and anxiety at times. And this is not a call on our lives to not be diligent and wise and steward all that's been given to us, including our children. But the central truth is that we have been called and the door will always lead out and we have to live that way. And so that's why you'll notice an emphasis for us, just wrapping up. An emphasis this summer, it started with our vacation Bible school and And don't stretch the analogy too far, but I'm going to suggest that one way the door leads out is to our kids and to our students who are in great need right now of people to serve, to share with them about who Jesus is. And each week we make steady progress, but if you are not living out there, I encourage you to live out there right here and to visit the table in the lobby and to talk to someone today about what it would look like for you to give your life away and to live your life out there. But we're gonna conclude this message in this service celebrating and commissioning a group of people who are literally going to illustrate and do for us what this text does for us. Where is the high school Chicago team? Here they are, come on up. Welcome our high school team. Can we give Mark a microphone? Thank you. Mark, would you share with us um, what you guys are doing in Chicago and when? 
Good morning, family. Next Sunday, we take off to Humble Park, Chicago. We'll stay at North Park. Uh, we partner with an organization called Center for Student Mission, and we'll just be serving the community there. We'll partner with an organization called Casa Central um, to just serve preschoolers and children, um, grade school kids, and to create some enrichment program opportunities for there. And we'll experience different uh, faith-based churches around the city. We'll serve in some elderly homes. Uh, we'll serve at some soup kitchens together, um, but really advancing the work that God is doing through Center for Student Mission all year round. So we just get to be hands and feet in places that need those hands and feet in the summer. And we would love to have you partner with us to be senders if you can. There we go. So what we do is when anyone from our family goes out to serve the Lord out there, uh, we bless them, we pray for them, we commission them. Um, and I just want to tell you guys, there's this wonderful scripture in Timothy about being an example. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example with your life and what you are doing, giving up a week of your summer at a very fun time of life to do what you're doing is such an example to each one of us. And I'll let you in on a little secret. Um, not a lot of us live this way that often. And so thank you for encouraging us. And we are so proud that you are part of our church and that you are the family of God here at Lake Avenue. Um, there are great needs. And in the lobby, or you can talk to Mark, they have, they're a couple thousand dollars short from what they need. And so still, we need people to partner with them. But I would ask you as a congregation, if you're comfortable, to extend your hand towards them as we pray for them and send them off to Chicago with a promise, Mark, we will hear what happens, okay? Okay. All right, join me in prayer for this amazing group of students and leaders. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity for this team to serve you in Chicago. We thank you that each one here has taken your commission to go into all the world to preach the gospel and to serve people to heart. And we are so grateful for their example and encouragement to us today. Father, we ask that you would first provide for them miraculously, cover all the costs of the trip over and above, let it be in abundance. I pray that you'll give us each, each one of these, a submissive heart to authority and bring the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace among the entire group. Let the mind that is in Christ be also in them. Let none of them do anything out of selfish ambition, but that they would look to the well-being of one another and to others the entire time in Chicago. Give them a servant's heart and spirit as you had, Jesus. I pray that your Holy Spirit will lead and guide them along the way. Reveal your spiritual gifts to these younger lives that you have placed within them, and may they be used for your glory. Cause them to be your hands and feet as they minister in Chicago. We pray for good health throughout the trip. May they be fully aware of your purpose, and that they may use all of them to the fullness of you. And we boldly pray for their safety and protection throughout the trip. We pray for our Pastor Mark, that you'll give him great wisdom and great leadership. Watch over them from their rising up to their laying down. Grant them all the peace and a successful trip. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Have a good trip, guys. Let's give them a round of applause. <laughs>